No, it was off. My bad. Several years ago, I drove over to Galveston early in the morning to go sit with a family whose, whose baby was having heart surgery. Surgery went well. Baby's done great. Baby's growing up now. But anyway, when I went over there, I went over early because I knew it's hard to find a parking place sometimes in Galveston, and that was true that morning. Drove around, drove around, around the hospital, so I finally found an empty space on a street, but it was confusing when I parked there to know which parking meter to put the money into to pay for parking. I just, I couldn't tell. I was in between two. The stripe, the parking places weren't marked, so I guessed. I guessed wrong. And when I came out later, I had a ticket. Ten dollars. So when I got home, I called the city of Galveston and said, hey, I paid for parking, but uh, I paid in the wrong, uh, you know, parking meter, and it's hard to see. And they just said, tell it to the judge. We can't help you. So I said, I am going to. It's a matter of principle. I know it's just $10, but gosh, you know, I'm going back. So I had my day in court. I drove back to Galveston one morning about a month later, went before the judge. I waited for all these other, you know, things to be adjudicated, and finally it was my time my day in court. And I told the judge, I said, hey, I came over. I was doing a good thing. I came over to visit with a, to be with a family whose son was having surgery, and I paid for parking. And he looked at me, and he goes, did you pay in the right meter? I went, no, sir, but he goes, boom, pay the fine, $10. But, no, he cut me off. Next, $10 parking ticket, already paid for it, quarter tank of gas, half day's lost work, Pride is severely wounded. <laughs> Priceless. <laughs> you know, just file that under the category of no good deed goes unpunished. Right? You ever been there? Yeah. You know, we, we have this feeling of justice and, and what is right and wrong. We feel like good deeds should always be rewarded and bad deeds should always be punished. Right? Unless it's our bad deed and then we need grace. But anyway, you know, this is just the way we feel about things. But it turns out life doesn't always work that way, does it? It just does it. We're going to see a great example of that big time in today as we journey through the book of John with Jesus on his journey to the cross. We're going to see that today. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open your Bible to John chapter 11, verse 45, I believe. Yeah, John eleven forty-five. And um, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You can pick one up out at the Welcome Center on your way out, and we have English or Spanish translation, whatever you would prefer. Also, if you're looking for it in your Bible, if you have one you're not real familiar with, just slip three-fourths of the way through your Bible. You'll get to what we call the New Testament, which is really the, the heart of what the Bible is all about. And look for the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Flip over to John and go to chapter 11. That's where we'll pick up today. So let me set the scene for you from last week, okay? Last week, we, we talked about Jesus' perhaps greatest, not a perhaps, Jesus' greatest miracle yet that he had performed. He had raised back to life a man who had been dead for four days, a man who was actually his friend, a guy named Lazarus. Now, as you would expect, that miracle created quite a stir. So that's what we're picking up the story after that happened. Here's where we go today, okay? Verse 45, therefore, many of the Jews, now everybody was a Jew there because this was in Israel. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. Mary was the brother of the man who was raised back to life. He was, she was Lazarus's, uh, she was the sister of the man who was raised back to life. And so Mary, Mary was, was being comforted by all these people who came to be with her just to share in her grief. And they see this great miracle. And so many of them, look at verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit him 
believed in, who'd come to visit uh, and see what Jesus had believed in him. Now, you might remember from several weeks back, we saw the, John, the author of this gospel, he put back to back, many people believed, and in the next verse, he said, these people believed in. John uses this phrase, believed in, to let us know that these people didn't just believe something good had happened, they put their faith in Jesus, they believed in him, they became followers of Jesus. And at the same time, though, we see, as we read along, others believed Lazarus had been raised back to life. They believed it happened, but their belief had nothing to do with faith and certainly wasn't placed in Jesus. As a matter of fact, they saw Jesus as a threat to their way of life. So they basically went and tattled on him to people who, who also would be equally or more upset than him. Look at verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees. Those are the religious leaders in Israel. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. As we'll see in a moment, these folks were not only unhappy about Jesus' ministry, they were angry and they were frightened. What does this have to do with us today? Well, it's a sobering reminder that you shouldn't expect everyone to be happy about your relationship with Jesus. You're happy when you step over the line of faith and begin to follow him, but everyone else may not be. And many of you can relate all too well to this truth. Instead of joy about becoming a follower of Jesus Christ and in your life beginning to make sense, you were greeted with ridicule or doubt or maybe even opposition. Many of you students heard about Jesus. You were invited to, to church or to camp or Wednesday night or to a retreat with your friends and you came and, and when you stepped over the line of faith, man, your life began to make sense. You had new life. And your life began to move forward in the right direction. You are living proof of what Jesus can do in a person's life, in the abundant life that he gives us when we start to follow him. But perhaps your parents or siblings or, or maybe both just didn't share that same joy. They may have just dismissed it as a fad and said, oh, you're young, you, you'll, you'll grow out of it. This is just a phase you're going through. Or maybe they even verbally attacked you. Oh, oh, I get it. So now you're a Jesus follower, and we're the sinners, and so you're better than us now, right? That, that, that's where we are now? You're just better than us, and we're going to be like, we're going to go to hell, right? And they just don't understand. That happens to our students all the time. We have a lot of students who are following Jesus, and their parents aren't on board yet. Perhaps it's your spouse who isn't happy. And they're not just not happy. They're upset. Maybe if, if, if it, you're a wife, your husband thinks, oh, now there's another man in life competing with me. Or if you're a husband, they're just thinking, okay, I, I don't get this. What do you need this Jesus thing for? And they're, they're threatened by that. They feel like they're not first in your life anymore. Maybe, maybe you're changing lifestyle. You just have different desires now. Maybe that threatens their lifestyle. Maybe some of your friends feel the same way. And, and sometimes when you step over the line of faith to follow Jesus, Unfortunately, it can mean stepping away from friends or family. Even though you don't intend to, it's them. That's how the religious leaders felt about Jesus, about people who believed in Jesus in that day. And it's why the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, that was the, the highest judicial body in Israel. It was, it was a religious body, but it also contained, that the Sanhedrin also had most of the political power there in Israel, but they served under the authority of the Roman army. And they were alarmed because with Jesus gaining popularity and he wasn't 
one of them, they felt that their, their power was being threatened. They cared much less about the people, much less about someone having new life, much less about someone being healed, much less brought back from the dead. They just wanted their power. So they cared not about the people, but about their power. Look at verse 47. They said to one another, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. Now, I'm going to tell you something about that word signs. The word signs translated from the Greek word simeon in the Greek. It means an event having some special meaning, something, something pointing to a reality even greater than itself. What could be greater, what could be a greater reality than someone coming back to life from the dead? Other than, of course, the person who did that, who made that person come back to life. You see, it wasn't a resurrection they feared at all. It was the one who had the power to resurrect that they feared. Look at verse 48. Here's, here's their thinking. They believed he raised someone from the dead. But they said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. That's what they were afraid of. That's what had them so worried. This was not a noble defense of their country like we need to protect our people. No, that wasn't that at all. This was about maintaining power. The Romans shared power with the Sanhedrin as long as the Sanhedrin kept everything under control. And these people on the Sanhedrin were more than willing to sacrifice an innocent man's life to give them, to hang on to their power. There's a lesson for us here today. Beware. Beware of the temptations to defend, to depend upon the government to support your faith. I've heard people talk about it. Well, I, have to, I have to vote this way because this is the God way, you know? And I've heard that on both sides of the political spectrum, by the way. Beware. That's a temptation to depend on the government to support your, your faith. Listen, your vote is important. It is very important. But your vote does not protect your faith. Your, or your faith is in your vote and not in Jesus. Jesus is, your, Jesus is who you depend upon. Whether it's Washington or Austin or Lake Jackson or Jones Creek politics, being admired or, or supported by any seat of government can be intoxicating. You've got to be careful about that. What usually happens is when you depend on something outside your faith in Jesus, your faith takes a back seat to that newfound influence or loyalty. Chuck Colson a man, about 40 years ago, he went to jail for his part in the Watergate scandal that brought down the Nixon presidency. He was, he was Richard Nixon's dirty tricks guy. He would start, put lies out that, that then the opponents would have to defend. And that, that still happens today on both sides. And uh, anyway, he went, he, went to, he went to jail for that. But then later, actually right before he went to prison, he became a follower of Jesus Christ and a powerful man of the faith. But something he said one time was really interesting. He said that preachers were the easiest influencers to influence. All you had to do was take a group of powerful preachers on the presidential yacht down a river cruise on the Potomac, and they, would, they were all in. They, they, were, they were supporters of you. Tim Keller, a Presbyterian pastor in New York, described that problem this way. He said, as soon as our loyalty to anything leads us to disobey God, we are in danger of making it an idol. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were not that interested in God. They were interested in their power. And power, leading other people, had become their idol. Especially a man named Caiaphas. Look at verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. 
You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for one man to die for the people than the whole nation perish. Caiaphas was going to be talking because he knew nothing really about Jesus. I'll come back to that in a minute. But first, let me tell you a little bit about Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest in Israel from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36. And then the last 10 years from A.D. 26 to 36, he served alongside the Roman governor by the name of Pilate. And together they forged this uneasy peace in Israel and Jerusalem and around that area. But in AD 36, when Pilate was forcibly removed from office, Caiaphas immediately lost his hold on the high priesthood. It was supposed to be this religious thing, but it was, it was more about political power. You see, Caiaphas trusted in Rome, and Rome let him down. I'll repeat what I said earlier. Be aware of the temptation to depend upon government to support your faith. It will let you down. Put your faith in Jesus only. Look back to verse 50. Let's, let's talk about Caiaphas here. Caiaphas said, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Now, what he did was he prophesied the gospel, the good news of Jesus, without even realizing it. His language was the language of sacrifice, temple sacrifice. They would sacrifice an animal to pay for the sins of people there in the temple. See, to die for the people means to die in place of or on behalf of the people. Jesus would die in our place on behalf of us, to die in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. That's what Jesus did. Caiaphas didn't understand what he was saying. He just feared a rebellion led by Jesus would result in the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and to the end of their power sharing with the Romans. And so that made political sense, what he said. Kill Jesus and save the people from a Roman invasion. Simple enough. But he had it all wrong. He knew nothing. His assumption about Jesus' ambition was wrong. He, um, his, his, so was his understanding about who Jesus needed to die for. The truth is Caiaphas knew nothing. One man did die. Jesus died. But one man died not just for the people of a nation, but for the people of all nations. Jesus didn't die just for one nation. His purpose wasn't to save people from an out-of-control government have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus lived under the shadow of one of the most horrendous governments the world has ever seen, the Roman Empire? And his followers did too. Go back and look and see how much they talked about turning over the government and taking it back and all that kind of stuff. They didn't. They put their faith in Jesus and they kept following Jesus. And in spite of the horrific things that the government did, they didn't lose their faith in Jesus. And over the course of about two or 300 years, the Roman Empire flipped and a Roman emperor said, Christianity is now the religion of the Roman Empire. They changed the government by loving people all the time. By loving people during pandemics and dying with them. They changed really the world. Unfortunately, when it became supported by the government, religion just went downhill and Christianity became a, a political force again. It doesn't have to be that way. So Caiaphas did not realize Jesus' actual purpose. He didn't know that Jesus died for one nation. His purpose wasn't to save people from the government, to save them from their sins. This is the gospel. One man died for the world, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know what? In the last few weeks, 
It has been so cool to see some children and several adults step over the line of faith and publicly profess their faith in Jesus Christ. Three more people went public with their faith last week in our Discovering Brass Point class. It's just awesome to see what happens when people turn their life over to Jesus Christ and it begins to make sense. I hope some of you who are thinking about that right now will make that decision too, to trust Jesus with your life, to step over the line of faith and begin following him. I'll be over here at Connection Point after the service. I'd be happy to talk to anyone about that. If you're considering that decision, have some questions about it, or just want someone to help pray with you and help you step over that line. Let's look back one more time at John 11:50. Caiaphas, the high priest, he said, you do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God. You know who those are? That's us. We're the scattered children of God. We're the non-Jews, the Gentiles. Jesus died for us too. He prophesied Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. This marks a real significant change in people's reaction to Jesus, people's negative reaction to Jesus. It has now escalated from impulsive attempts to, to stone Jesus that, that never worked when he said something that they thought was blasphemy to now this became premeditated murder by those who held the political power in Israel. Look at verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. This marks the end of Jesus' public ministry. He essentially goes underground, and the next six chapters in John are going to focus on Jesus' final instructions to his disciples and friends, and that's going to be real important for us to look at that as we continue this journey with Jesus through the book of John. When Jesus next enters Jerusalem, the countdown to his crucifixion will begin. And from this point forward, the Gospel of John is focused on the cross. Let's see how this particular story kind of comes to a conclusion and leads to the next, okay? John chapter 11, verse 55. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, so this just a short amount of time has passed since um, you know, Caiaphas has said all this crazy stuff to his, um, to his people. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so they might arrest him. Basically, a warrant has been issued for Jesus' arrest. Interestingly, though, just as Jesus made it clear after repeated attempts to stone him, you remember as we've been reading through this, we've seen several times people wanted to stone him immediately, and Jesus just kind of disappeared through the crowd. How did he do that? Well, he's God. Did something supernaturally. Well, it's going to be interesting to see when, when we do see Jesus coming back into Jerusalem for his final week there, that even all the attempts to arrest him will fail. They can't even arrest him until he says it's time. You may remember a few weeks ago, Jesus said, no one takes my life. I lay down my life for my sheep. Jesus would not ever be taken by anyone. He gave himself up. 
when it was time, when he was ready, when he was finished with all that he had done to prepare us for life without him. So we'll see that no one takes Jesus' life until he's ready to give it. Six days before the Passover, though, we see Jesus did make an appearance at Bethany at a dinner party given in his honor by Lazarus and his sisters. Randy's going to walk you through a beautiful story that happened at that dinner party next week. You can find it in the, in the, the uh, first few verses of John chapter 12. But I'll let him deal with that. I wanted you to skip down to verse 9. This is all... This is all happening right after Jesus brings Lazarus back to the dead. He goes underground, but he does come out to go see uh, to a dinner party in Bethany, not too far from Jerusalem. And so this is what happens when Jesus goes to that dinner party. Chapter, nine, chapter 12, verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there at Bethany at the dinner party and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Don't you think if somebody had been raised from the dead nearby, you'd want to go see them too? Man, I would. That's what happens when people see new life in those who follow Jesus. And that happens when people see new life in people who follow Jesus now. They come. They come. They come to see. Listen, this is so important. People are open to hearing about Jesus. Even if they don't realize what they're listening, up, looking for or open for, God is working in people's hearts all the time, and they're open to hearing about Jesus. It is our privilege to tell them. I want to encourage you. Look for opportunities to share your faith with your neighbors, your family, your friends, the people you go to school with, the people you work with. You don't have to force it. You don't have to really work real hard to kind of shove Jesus into a conversation. Just ask God to show you when the opportunity will open up. And he will. And he'll make an opportunity. When you least expect it, it'll, just, it'll be there. And just ask him, just Jesus, give me the words to say. He will. And if you can't think of anything great to say, invite them to church. We share the good news of Jesus every week here, the gospel. Your friends are willing to hear about Jesus. They're just waiting on you to invite them to learn more, to come and see. Well, even while Jesus is keeping a low profile, back to the story, everyone was talking about Jesus and Lazarus. Not just the people who thought it was cool, but back to the Pharisees and Sanhedrin, the leaders of the church. Look at verse 10 and 11. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. I want you to think about how this must have made Lazarus feel. Man, put yourself in his sandals. It's one thing to die and be raised back to life. But to face death again so soon after he had just gone through probably a painful death, and this time to know that his death, his next death, might be a violent death. People are wanting to kill him. This can't be good. It had to be unnerving. Now, it doesn't appear from any records available at that time, not from, not from the accounts in the Bible or from extra-biblical accounts that we have from that same time in history. It doesn't appear that Lazarus, the plot to kill Lazarus ever succeeded but he did eventually die again. You know that, right? He did die again. So did everybody Jesus healed. They all died. Have you ever thought about what it was like to be Lazarus, though, and die twice? I mean, he knew what it was like. He's got to go through it again. 
Oh, I'll just leave that thought hanging, okay? I won't do anything with that. All right, but I will tell you this. While Lazarus and his friends are celebrating his resurrection, it doesn't last too long because he learns a plot has been hatched to kill him again. And I wonder how that made him feel. I can only imagine that too. I mean, did he think, bring it on, bro. I'm 10 feet tall and bulletproof. I've already come back to life once. Give me, you know, did he, did he break into his best Pat Benatar cover and say, hit me with your best shot? Fire away. I don't know. Some people think he did. I don't know. Or did it terrify him? Did it terrify him to think, I've got to go through this again, and this time it's really going to hurt? Did he go into hiding until Jesus' resurrection, and then knew he could come out? I don't know. But I do know this, and this is something we have to remember, have to know if you're going to follow Jesus Christ. If you follow Christ, you can expect opposition. You wouldn't think so because Jesus loves people. Jesus wants to help people, but that's not how people who don't know Jesus see it. So you can expect opposition. As I said earlier, many of you have already paid a price for your faith in Jesus, and I know it makes life hard for you sometimes, but at least there's not a, a death warrant out for your life like Lazarus. No one's plotting to, to take your life. But you know, much of our world today does live with that kind of fear and uncertainty. Do you know that countless brothers and sisters of yours in Christ from nations around the world live in that kind of fear daily? Do you know more people are dying for their faith in Christ today than ever have in the history of the world? It's a dangerous place to live if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Many places in the world are dangerous. We support the International Mission Board. You've heard us talk about the IMB, International Mission Board, through our budget and our world missions offering. I recently became a trustee of the International Mission Board and went through orientation last week. And it was an eye-opener. I knew a lot of things about them, but it was amazing some of the things that I've learned and the sacrifices that some of our missionaries make. You know, we're proud of someone when they join the military and they go off and they risk their life. Do you know that when someone becomes a missionary, they're going off to risk their life except they don't have guns to fight back with? All over the world, that happens. I'm amazed at the sacrifices that our missionaries have made along with to, to stand alongside the persecuted people. Some men and women who you've supported with your gifts have been assassinated for their faith. Not long time ago, just since this church, many have died for their faith working with the IMB since we started this church 21 years ago. And they continue to risk their lives. Why would they do that? Because it's worth it. It's worth it. Why do we subject ourselves to insults and misunderstandings? Because it's worth it. We follow an unstoppable Savior who died and came back to life. And he has power over life. A Savior who gives us abundant life now, even in the midst of persecution. And will give us that eternal life when we cross over from this life to the next. It is worth it. And it's worth it to live bold so that other people can come to know Jesus Christ and have forgiveness of their sins and eternal life with Jesus. The alternative is unthinkable. So let's go, folks. Come on, let's live bold for Jesus Christ. Trusting in him, knowing that when he is in control, the best thing that can happen, not just for us, but for those around us, in the world around us, even if it's tough for us, 
A greater good always happens if we will follow Jesus and trust him. Let's live like we believe that and hold our heads up high because our faith is in Jesus, not in ourselves, not in others, especially not in any other government, in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus into our world. Thank you for letting us see other people live out their faith in your son, Jesus, so that we can know how to live out ours. God, help us to learn lessons from the people who follow you. Lord, let us be bold and brave, not arrogant, just trusting in you. God, I pray specifically for people who have given their life to you recently, and they've, they've taken a hit for it. Their friends, their family have not understood and it's been difficult. God, help them to know it's worth it. And I pray that you would just be with them as they live their lives quietly, humbly. And I pray that people would see that change in them. And that those folks who are detractors will become fellow Christ followers. God, help us to be about following your son, the risen Savior. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.